Good afternoon. We are expecting the way back in today, but they requested a reschedule for next Sunday, so we'll look forward to Anita Pendur and Scott Ward joining Doris in the studio next week. You know what that means? It's Black Muse Sunday. Doris moderated the 2022 Barbara Bollinger Lecture at the Oak Park Public Library with WBEZ's Natalie Moore about her new book, The Billboard, A Play About Abortion. Today we'll hear that lively conversation that Doris conducted for the Black Muse podcast. I would like to take this opportunity to thank Ed Pitts and Howard Sandifer for their videography. Uh, We're going to be uh, rebroadcasting this on WCPT as well as Black Muse, which is a podcast. So I want to thank everybody for being here today. I see so many faces that I know. Hey, (laughs) y'all. How you doing? this it's like a little family reunion you know we can slip into our home language and how we talk to one another and then we'll get a little formal and kind of go in and out of things this is an important conversation it's very timely and it's personal and I want to tell you first why it's personal to me because when I think about rights of any kind being taken away or granted I'm a black woman in case you haven't noticed what goes along with being a black woman is that every single day you walk around the world in your skin wondering if your freedom can be taken away when the sun goes down. That's real talk, y'all. How many in this room have ever woken up in the morning feeling like that? I didn't think so. And that's why you'll hear some words today that are really important, like allies. How many people here feel like they're an ally? Yeah? Yeah, supporter. You want to be there. And it takes a certain kind of an ally to be effective, though. A lot of people use that word real loosely. So just talking about black women for a moment, how many in here have a black female friend? Yeah? How many people here have a black female friend that you speak to every day? Don't lie. (laughs) How many people in here have a black female friend who comes to your house at least three days a week? Y'all said, I don't even have a white friend that comes to my house. I don't even have a family member that comes to my house three days a week. So that's good, though. But you get the point, right? It's one thing to say we know somebody and that we're familiar with somebody. But if you're not really friends and you don't really know the ins and outs that that person is going through every day, then it's a little hard to be a real effective ally because you can't be an ally from a distance. And when I think about how Roe versus Wade was overturned, and I think about how separate but equal, separate but equal could come back for some people, I'm scared. So we're gonna get into our conversation here because whenever I have an opportunity to display a little black girl magic, (laughs) I'm all in. Folks know that about me. Now, Natalie Moore, I am such a big fan of yours. I think the last time we were together, I was at your last book launch. Uh, It was held downtown, I think, and I brought a posse of my folks from the office that day. But um, we've got a lot to talk about in this new book that you have. And one of the questions that I have to ask you, of all the rights that we have today as women, Why have reproductive rights become so urgent? It's a very good question. Well, first, thank you, Doris. Thank you to the library, and hello to Barbara, who's on Zoom. (laughs) I'm honored to be here, and I just want to say, I mean, you all know this, but libraries are so important, and 
I frequent libraries. I'm not one of those people who say, oh, I have memories as a child. Um, I heard that librarians hate when people talk about the past and, and they're like, well, do you go to the library now? Right. Um, and especially the moment that we're in now, librarians are radical. Mm-hmm. And on the drive here, my six-year-old who's in the front and maybe a wee bit restless, I decided to have a TED talk about banned books. And she said, well, I don't understand. If you don't want to read it, then don't read it. You don't have to ban it. From the mouth of babes. And then she said, well, why don't they put the banned books for kids in the adult section? <laughs> I said, well, they would probably find out and, and still try to, to ban them. Uh, so this type of engagement is you know, bigger than me being here today. And I just really appreciate libraries and all they do in protecting democracy. So out of all the rights, um, well, I can really go deep on this um, because I'm continuing to be educated around abortion. So when we, back in the spring, when the, the leak came out, so I was not, I started writing this in 2018. I did not think Roe was going to be overturned because um, Amy Amy Coney Barrett was not on the court yet. Brett Kavanaugh had just gotten on the court. When the billboard's dates were decided in January, it was a month after the Supreme Court took up Dobbs v. Jackson. And I told the folks at 16th Street Theater, abortion is going to be banned when this play is out. And I don't think most people believe me, not because they think that I don't tell the truth, but if you're not really engaged, it sounds so far-fetched because we don't see rights taken away, generally, by the court. the Supreme Court is usually giving us rights. So, as you know in your own lives, the discourse changed overnight about abortion. And so we also knew that this would be decided late in the term because the Supreme Court tends to do its most controversial decisions later. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking about what kinds of stories can we have in the hopper for when Roe drops. And what I thought about is how did Illinois get to be where it is today? And I borrow from a lot of work that was already done. There's a wonderful book called um, When Abortion Was a Crime by Leslie Regan. She is a law professor at U of I. And she spends a lot of time talking about Illinois. And one of the things that Alito said in his opinion was that abortion was made illegal by states and that should be part of the basis. Now, these were like in 1827, (laughs) before slavery. And I'm like, this is really what you beat that state? (laughs) In the 18, where where rights were, like what rights were there for most people in this country? But if we're talking about women, Mm -hmm. um, so that was shocking that that he said that. Um, And just to give you just kind of a a very brief overview, um, abortion was not always a word. It was, you know, called quickening. And it wasn't, so you don't, terminate after you feel the kicking. Mm -hmm. So also learning in the 1800s that there was fear by white men that white Anglo-Saxon women were not having enough babies. Mm -hmm. In the 1800s, they thought too many enslaved women were indigenous and East... um, European immigrants who had not graduated to whiteness in this in this country yet. So, you know, we hear this now that this is really about, you know, controlling and replacement theory and all those things, but to read that this goes back mm-hmm. that far was really surprising to me. Yeah, whoever thought that this would be about population control yeah. for white women when we hear that's a fear of black women. Right. And then learning about the American Medical Association 
really hasn't done any reckoning around its role in abortion, which as we know is based in Chicago. So midwives were doing abortion and there were some doctors who were very upset about these women doing something in medicine and they launched a campaign to be against abortion. So that was surprising mm-hmm. as well. So um, I can go on and on about different examples, but thinking t- to your question, wanting to take these rights away goes back. But it is important to, to know that, and I said abortion wasn't a word, but this type of procedure was happening in indigenous cultures, African, European, and it wasn't seen as a big deal. Yeah, yeah. And then suddenly, and as we think about population control, racial fears, Mm -hmm. and then the the fear of women encroaching on your, you know, because they they couldn't be doctors, Mm -hmm. and um, attacking midwives in the process. And the AMA was behind that as an as an institution based on who its leaders were mm-hmm. exactly um, you know when I think about this I always do research on the person that I'm going to be interviewing and the topic and one of the things that I was surprised to learn Natalie was that two-thirds of families started by teens are poor I mean that's just a fact in this country right now and nearly one in four will depend on welfare within three years of a child's birth. Many children will never, ever, ever be able to escape the cycle of poverty. And only about two-thirds of children born to teen mothers earn a high school diploma compared to 81% of their peers with older parents. And why that becomes important is obviously because these are the impacts of this overturning of Roe versus Wade. These women are going to be impacted tremendously. There's nowhere for them to go. On the way here, in fact, I was reading a report about a 10-year-old that was raped, and it's the doctor who's at the center of this whole controversy, who is now, she's getting death threats every day. She's been charged by, I forget the state, who's taking her to court for performing this procedure. It's a non-surgical procedure that she performed on the 10-year-old who was violently raped. And while abortion is routine as a productive health right for many of Americans, it is not the same for those who have unwanted pregnancies and have difficulties with pregnancies, and of course those that are dealing with issues like incest and rape. Now, Natalie, why more? In 2011, I believe it was, you covered a story on billboards that were coming to black communities across America. I don't remember if it had happened in Chicago at that time. You can let us know. But I was fascinated by this timeline. I, there were moments where I said, okay, is Natalie Moore a prophet? Because <laughs> I know she's done a lot of things, but, you know, really, 2011 is quite a while ago you covered this. When I think about when Roe versus Wade was overturned back in June, and I start going back, your play opened six days later, I think, or well, your no, book was, it was published? Um, Haymarket published this as a book in March. And our, I think, Roe came. Anybody the, know the, the date? The, the decision was June 24th. Mm-hmm. I know because I was in Mexico. <laughs> um, the previews for the billboard were starting the 23rd, but then the lead got COVID. Uh-huh. So then we pushed it to the 25th, uh-huh. and then the understudy got COVID. <laughs> <laughs> so the play was then pushed back mm-hmm. a week. So two cancellations. But Technically, the play would have opened the day before the Dobbs decision. Wow. Now, you, I mean, the timing couldn't have been any more perfect. But tell us when this idea came to you to write this play about abortion. I mean, this just seems so prophetic to me. And it's not. It is simply <laughs> a coincidence. Um, I, I will say that I have always thought abortion is timely. 
And we've seen another book, if this is of interest to you, I highly recommend The Family Row, spelled R-O-E, by Joshua Prager. Um, it was a finalist for the Pulitzer this year, and it is a deep dive into the woman behind Jane Roe, Norma McCorvey, and the pro-life and pro-choice movements. And another fascinating element that many of you may already know is that abortion was not, I just gave a, you know, a little brief history about who was against it, but abortion rights was bipartisan. You had Democrats who might have been anti-abortion, but lots of Republicans who were for abortion. So it wasn't a political issue. And Joshua Prager's book gets into when that politicization changed. And it was uh, around the Reagan years, uh, the the beginning of of that. So that's, I think, really noteworthy um, because a lot of people didn't think Roe would be overturned because they thought cynically, and I was one of those people, that it was a recruitment tool. So if they overturn it, then what do they have? Well, just more things that can be taken away because, you know, reading this uh, decision, it's really opening the door mm-hmm. to a lot of things, except banning interracial marriage because mm-hmm. Clarence Thomas thinks that that one is okay. It's all <laughs> right. the other things that, that are not. Whose so, wife wanted to overturn yes, yes. the election. So he's, he's going he's gonna to protect Jenny at all costs. Um, <laughs> So that's just a little bit of the, the framework there. And, and, and by the way, many of those Republican women who voted for, who wanted and supported it, are regretting it now because they don't realize, a lot of them, I'm understanding, are feeling like that's not quite what we meant. We didn't. I don't know. I'm too cynical for someone like Susan Collins to be like, Brett Kavanaugh lied to me. Like everybody said that. Like (laughs) she's so convenient. (laughs) So you know, I don't know if I if I buy these things because the the handwriting was was on the wall. So like you said, there was Mm -hmm. there's been this movement, um, a black conservative funded by white white evangelicals, putting up anti-abortion billboards that are specific, that are targeting black communities. Mm -hmm. And to do the, I mean, they're even in New York, and like this isn't the breeding ground to, Mm -hmm. you know, I I wouldn't think strategically to to place them, because it hasn't gained much traction. But what happened in 2018 was the same guy who did Chicago did Dallas. And the language around these billboards are things like the most dangerous place for a black child is his mother's womb, abortion is genocide. Mm -hmm. Well, there is a black women's health group in Dallas called the Athea Center, and they decided to clap back mm-hmm. and strong. They put up a, bu- a billboard that said, along the lines, black women have the right to make decisions for their family, abortion is self-care, hashtag trust black women. That's where that hashtag came from. And the billboard had three women smiling on the billboard. When I saw the billboard, I was taken aback. I did not go to Twitter or Facebook to <laughs> you know, discuss my feelings, but I had never seen abortion described as self-care. And I am a child of the 90s, and so I grew up with keep abortion safe, legal, and rare, which has its own form of stigmatization. And I was, I had another idea for a play, but I didn't, and I had already established a relationship with 16th Street Theater and Ann Filmer, who I'm sure some of you know. and. I decided not to embarrass myself, so I took a class at Chicago Dramatist. And if anyone here is a play lover, think about the last play that you saw. Something or someone shows up. It's not like a novel where it's meandering and it's you know topical. I mean, of course, it has a plot, but there's an urgency just like it is with news. So something is showing up. Mm-hmm. And this homework assignment was write about something that shows up. And this billboard had just happened. And I was feeling a certain kind of way, like why is this billboard bothering me? Like why do I feel kind of offended by it? Which I I feel really silly saying that now, but 2018, (laughs) a lifetime ago. And so I called a friend of mine who's a midwife and an abortion provider in Memphis. And as we know, Tennessee has banned abortions and this is the clinic that is opening a clinic in Carbondale and they're going to be running 
putting people on trains because it's a three-hour ride. And I said, you know, can you help me sort this out? And she was like, it's fine. A lot of people feel this way. But, and, and even in the black reproductive justice community, there was a debate, is this going to, we feel this way, but is it going too far? Is the audience not ready? But, you know, self-care is not, and this is teased out in the play, it's not wine and, and, and bubble baths, it's not the capitalistic way. It is therapy. You know, do you have food on your table? Like all, all these, these bigger things. So I was like, okay, I get it. And then I wrote a four-page scene, and it got really great feedback in the class. I sent it to artistic director Ann Filmer. She read it and said, I don't want to tell you what to do, but I think this is your playing instead. <laughs> so I thought I should listen to her. And then I just started reading and trying, you know, doing research and understanding. And the great thing is that the women from the FIA Center came up from Dallas to see the play, and we did oh, a talk wonderful. back. And they were like, how did you, like, were you listening in on conversations? How did you <laughs> capture this? Because it's set in Chicago. It's set in Inglewood. It's set in a city council race. I was inspired by Dallas. Mm -hmm. but it's not a reenactment. But overall, what I was trying to do is also show that black men are, are affected by patriarchy just like white men are. Mm -hmm. And so this one character is thinking black women need to continue to have babies to uplift the race, where you have white men saying the same thing, you know, for different reasons, but, you know, they, they mirror each other. And so I wanted to have an interracial discussion about patriarchy, about black feminism, you know, set it in storytelling, not, um, right, you know, right. I, didn't, I didn't want the play to be didactic, but those were, the, and then, you know, it's, in many ways the play is about abortion, but it's not like no one's having an abortion in the play. Well, that's what, you know, and let's, let's stay with that line, that train of thought. Tell us, what is your message in the play? I mean, there are many themes in the play. But what is your specific message to other black women, to other women in general? Um, yeah, what's the message that you want us to get? I would say the message is who gets to speak for community? Mm. Mm. Because the person who puts up the billboard is running for city council, and he's black, and he's from Inglewood. And there's a fictitious clinic in Inglewood, the Black Women's Health Initiative. Um, run and founded by a woman who was from Inglewood as well. Mm -hmm. And they know each other. They're from the neighborhood. And there's some resentment that he has toward her for, you know, you don't know what the people want. You know, you didn't go to school in this community. You know, you left. And just because you have this medical degree doesn't mean you get to, to speak. And for him being a gadfly, and never getting anywhere, this billboard gives him the attention that he has never had. And people have said, well, why Inglewood? I could why have said Inglewood it anywhere. Why the casting, as you did with so many powerful black female leaders? I wanted it to be in a space that was contested, that has disinvestment. And so while this candidate is trying to link, link population laws in Inglewood to abortion, mm -hmm. which is a terrible, unstatistical <laughs> theory, he's also tapping into something about, like, we need something different. Look at this. It it's, looks the same after 40 years. Well, what's happening? We need new leadership. And in some ways, I don't even know how he feels about abortion. Like, he's not, he's coming at this from a, um, you know, a fake black nationalist. He could be a closet Herschel Walker. <laughs> hmm. He's not that big of a jive turkey. <laughs> He's, um, yeah, I, the women from Dallas said that the most hateful messages they got were from black men. Mm. Mm -hmm. And she had to get, she had to move. Mm -hmm when that billboard came up and she still has security. And I wouldn't say just because of, of black men, but yeah. it's, it's this, sister, you know, you're not down for the, like, mm -hmm. because black women, the, the black feminism, one of the elements that is teased is that you are against the race if you're critical of certain elements mm -hmm. of, mm -hmm. 
you know how black progress is mm-hmm. is measured. Yeah. Um, and you're you're killing our babies. How could how could you do that? And, and that whole you know history of. Many women here know the history of Planned Parenthood and the woman who founded Planned Parenthood, uh, Singer. Margaret Singer. Margaret Singer. And she was somebody who believed in population control and wanted to uh, control the uh, number of births by black women. And so today, that, that myth is still being spread that that is what Planned Parenthood is today, which indeed it is not. Um, in fact, I recall, people don't even remember this, Bishop Arthur Ambrasier, who was the pastor, the founding pastor of the Apostolic Church of God for over 20 years, my pastor, when his wife worked at Planned Parenthood forever. And people just don't realize how many churches are involved and support Planned Parenthood because it is not what Margaret Sanger formed the organization to be, thank God. And Margaret Sanger had a, it, it's a lot more complicated than mm-hmm. the. Oh, she didn't yeah. want black people, you know, having babies. She had a relationship with Du Bois. Mm-hmm. Uh, Planned Parenthood honored Martin Luther King in 1966, and Coretta Scott King, uh, you know, spoke at that ceremony on on his behalf. They both believed in in family planning, but I also understand a little bit of why I mean black people have a little bit of conspiracy theory mm-hmm. in them yes. because of things that have happened to us in this country including medically yes but you just have to arm people with information and um but you know like i said this city council candidate is tapping into something because there's this fear of well this you know inglewood's not going to be for us the white people are going to come and what's Mm -hmm. going to happen to us Has substance use or gambling taken over your life? Are you using substances or gambling to cope with difficult emotions or experiences? You may feel like you have to face life's challenges on your own in silence. But the reality is that we all need help sometimes. You are not alone. There's help available right here in your community at the Wayback Inn. The professional counselors at Wayback Inn can help you to heal and rebuild your family and your relationships, to live a new life in recovery from substance use or gambling. If you're looking for lasting change and a renewed lease on life, Wayback Inn is here to help. Begin your journey today. Visit waybackin.org. That's waybackin.org. This message is supported by the Proviso Township Mental Health Commission. Enjoying the Doris Davenport Program? You're not alone. The Doris Davenport Program is quickly becoming the place for all things local. If you have a quality local business or offer a quality service, the Doris Davenport Program is tailor-made for you. We offer reasonably priced announcements available to all. To find out how we can work together for success, call 1-312-296-9709 and speak to Doris directly about attaining your goals. 1-312-296-9709. Discover one of our community's unique resources, the Oak Park River Forest Community Foundation www.oprfcf.org The weather's getting warmer. Time to enjoy the outdoors. Biking, hiking, sports. Pains and sprains. I hate venturing out. Let me give you something for that. A Band-Aid? The number to Dr. Victor Romano. 708-848-4662 I'll need a body cast. How about holistic healing? Can you explain that? Not as well as Dr. Victor Romano, 708-848-7662, one Erie Court, Oak Park. It's time for your sports update. The Chicago Bears off today. They play Monday night football tomorrow night at the New England Patriots. Kickoff for that one, 7.15 p.m., Doris's beloved Buffalo Bills off this week on their bye. Next week, they'll be back Sunday night as they host the Green Bay Packers. 
As for my Raiders, currently at home right now with a lead on the Houston Texans. Looking around the league right now, just some of the scores for you around the NFL. Ravens defeated the Browns today. Panthers defeated the Buccaneers. Bengals take down the Falcons. Cowboys beat the Lions. And the Giants currently holding on to a slim lead over the Jacksonville Jaguars. Washington Commanders looking to close things out at Green Bay as there's other games going on around the afternoon. Tonight's game is going to be the Steelers at the Dolphins, and of course, Monday night, our beloved Bears at the Patriots. Looking over at the United Center, a week long of games every night at the United Center from last Friday to this Thursday. Bulls and Blackhawks switching off. Today it's the Blackhawks as they're just trailing right now the Seattle Kraken in the third period by the score of 4-3. to three. Last night it was the Bulls who lost to the Cleveland Cavaliers by a score of 128-96. to 96. Tomorrow night, the Bulls will host the Celtics. Blackhawks are next in action on Tuesday night as the Florida Panthers will come to town. And this just in, as I recorded this, the Blackhawks take the lead. Currently up 5-4 to four in the third period on the Seattle Kraken. In the Major League Baseball playoffs, we have a chance to see two pennant clinchers today. It's the San Diego Padres looking to fight for their lives against the Philadelphia Phillies, who have a 3-1 to series lead and could advance to the World Series for the first time since 2009. And meanwhile, in the American League, the Houston Astros have a chance to sweep the New York Yankees at Yankee Stadium, and that will take place tonight. This has been your sports update for the Doris Davenport Show, all local, all the time. Yeah, so the play is set in Englewood. We see uh, black women leading. We all know black women have been leading since the beginning of time. Uh, That seems to be something some people have a difficult time understanding or accepting. I love these themes that you've brought out in your play. I see themes of um, uh, personal and collective power. I see... um, themes of patriarchy and politics. What I'd like to do is to talk a little bit about allies. So one of the things that I'm trying to do here is we're going to follow the course of the play, but we're paralleling it with obviously what we're all faced with right now, and that's this issue of abortion and everything that's tied to it, um, from politics to our policies to just how we all relate and support one another as well. So let's take a look at how you've got some of these women interrelating with each other. I think about allies. You know, I, I, I ask these questions in the beginning, and there's a lot at play when people talk about being allies. Two of your characters, Tanya and Dawn, these are two black leaders with common issues, but they have opposing strategies. You have Tanya and Kayla, a mentor and a mentee. Um, The youth is teaching the elder about how to use technology tools. How much of what you know about protesting and um, strategizing came into play when you were doing character development for your play? Well, one friend of mine said to me, this play, you can tell, was written by someone who's attended a lot of community (laughs) meetings. Um, All of my books are rooted in journalism and things that I have experienced. Um, So yes, that that is a, nobody is based on a character, but you know, writing a play and writing audio scripts are similar, and that's why this was a Uh, a good transition for me in terms of genre because you're writing for the ear. And so I'm thinking about how people talk. Um, Even with the young woman, Kayla, you know, who's 19, a program assistant there, you know, I would ask my stepdaughter's questions like, what's a piece of technology that you've heard about in the past that you have no idea that that's about? She's like a beeper. So like that's a line that's that's in there. Um, So I, I tried to take, you know, you write these massive Profiles mm-hmm. of your characters, and these things don't even get into the play, but it's so you know them. And when I was writing, I did tweet, uh, I'm so Chicago that I'm spending so much time thinking about every single high school these characters went to, went to, even though 
it's never said in the play. But that's Chicago. I it's mean, so when you meet Chicago. Somebody, the first thing you want to know is what high school did you yes. go to? But I want to tell you something, Natalie. It shows, and I don't know how many of you feel this way. I know in Oak Park when we do a talk like this, 90% of the people in the room have read the book. So I know they know what I mean when I say this. I, even though you say a lot of what you wrote in your profile doesn't make it into the book, you see it. That is I true. I see the development in these characters. When I look at each one of these characters, I, I feel them. I get a sense of them. So I appreciate the work you did on that. Really. Thank you. And I wanted to keep, like, Demetrius, the, the candidate. I mean, he gets on my nerves so bad, but I... Mine too. You know, even the director, you know, she was careful not to play him up for laughs too much to make it buffoonery. And I wanted some, like, he's, he's insightful on certain things about the neighborhood. And I wanted to, I didn't want, you, you don't want one-dimensional characters. I think right. that's the, the best way to to say it. And you don't have to like the characters, but you don't want, it's too simplistic to be villain, evil. And then this other person, and Tanya, who's the founder, you know, she gets seduced by the attention. And she's so, we got to change the narrative. We got to change the narrative to the point of are you jeopardizing the work that you're doing? Are you too distracted? And at what point is changing the narrative more important than the work that you're doing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think about that you cast the play with uh, in a black scene, in a black neighborhood. When we think about this issue today, because we know it can never be won without the collaboration of black and white women together, how in your research have you found do black women and white women differ in what they think about abortion uh, itself? That's a really good question because even some of my friends' parents were like, Ugh, abortion, that's a white girl issue. And we're like, what? Like, that's how you see it? Um, so reproductive justice, we're speaking about Illinois history, mm-hmm. and there is a Q&A. So the, the play as a book has extra content. That's, that's in there. And one of them is a Q&A with Tony Bond, whose archives are at the um, Vivian Harsh Collection at Carter G. Woodson Library. In 1994, Tony Bond was the first black woman to head the Chicago Abortion Fund. And there was a pro-choice conference in Illinois that brought people from all over. And the black woman, and the, the Clinton health care bill was being debated. Like, it was... Um, I don't know if it was up for a vote yet, but it was it was during this this time, and a group of black women felt like there was too much emphasis on abortion, mm-hmm. and so reproductive justice was born out of that conference. So reproductive rights is the legal framework. Reproductive justice is the right to have a child, the right not to have a child. Mm-hmm the right to parent with the supports that you need, violence-free, and the right to sexual pleasure. Mm-hmm. So for reproductive justice advocates, they will say that Roe was the floor and justice was the ceiling. Some of the talk that we have, all, that we have heard going back to keep abortion safe, legal, and rare is abortion is a choice between a woman and her doctor. Um, the Roe decision was based on privacy and not autonomy. So if you don't have health care, you know, Medicaid doesn't, you can't have an abortion on Medicaid. That's a federal law. Illinois reversed that law, um, actually under Bruce Rauner. But that um, law came from, it was named after Henry Hyde. So Colleen Connell of the ACLU used to run the Reproductive Rights Center, and she would talk about all these. She's like, a lot of these laws were workshopped in Illinois. Illinois, abortion was in the criminal code here, and all of that changed um, in 2019 under the Reproductive Health Act. But just to go back to, uh, you know, what reproductive justice means is, you know, do you, can you afford an abortion? Do you have to take off work? Do you have housing? That abortion is just one spoke in this wheel of lots of issues around health care and access. So there's choice and then there's, I think the simplest way to think about it is choice versus access. 
And so for these activists, it's about access and not about this individual choice. And we do live in a society that tends to privilege individuality over community. I'd like to add to that. Um, uh, you know, I stopped attending my Catholic church uh, right here in Oak Park. And one of the reasons that I stopped attending the church service and continued to attend what we call extending the word, which in my view gave me far more spiritual food than the sermon I was hearing every Sunday and a lot of the other things. I was also a member of the social justice um, committee and I stopped attending that as well. And one of the reasons is because every time I brought up um, a project or an issue that dealt with black people, they never wanted to do it. And, but if I brought it up to do, or any of them brought it up with Latino women or Latino issues, they were ready and willing to do it. Now that's my personal experience. And so I decided that I can no longer attend this church. And it is one of the number one churches um, in, this, in this town. Um, Everyone's and, like, hmm, yeah. what church is that? I can hear. <laughs> and and, and my, my, my feeling of looking around the room in the eyes of the faces of these women who say they're allies for black women, but yet we're never willing to take on an issue about black women and for black women or black children is something that is unforgivable to me. So when I think about how uh, black women and white women, or um, I think my understanding of when I say white women, it's not, you know, uh, it's, it's the Catholic women. Uh, because I view, as a Catholic, the Catholic's view of abortion as, you should stop saying pro-life. It's really pro-birth. And the reason is because you can't say you want to give everybody the right to have a child or give every child a right to be born and then vote against every policy that gives that child the resources to survive and thrive. Well, I, I want to hit on two things sure. that, that you say to mm -hmm. that. So, again, going back to the Alito mm -hmm. decision, one thing he wrote was, Oh, well, there's no stigma to being a single mom. Oh, you can't be discriminated against if you're pregnant. All these things. So you don't need to have abortion. And I was like, oh, he sounds like a reproductive justice advocate because he's saying that there are support systems that are in place. And so maybe those support systems should be <laughs> enshrined. But he wrote that these things exist. So, and even to your point about poverty, earlier and all these things like there's no that, that's where the disconnect is. it is just have these babies but you know do you believe in universal child care like there's a whole host of things that would actually make you pro-life mm -hmm. that are that are not there and back to being allies you know tony bond said we did an event together with the chicago foundation for women this summer and she said everyone doesn't have to be, be, be a reproductive justice warrior mm -hmm. She did think that organizations should have that framework and understand it. And then Loretta Ross, I, I believe it was her who said this. She was another one of those four mothers, those 12 women. She said reproductive justice is not for black women only. And that that's wrong to even suggest because you're saying that black women are not capable of creating a framework mm -hmm. that everyone could have. And she said, because everything that I just named in those tenets are not, they may, dis, they may affect one race more, mm -hmm. but none of those things were racially specific. Mm -hmm. And so I think the allyship is, you know, how do you get the reproductive rights of the pro-choice organizations to, and it may be uncomfortable. You know, one of the reviews that I got um, from the reader was written by a white woman who said, she was like, wow, like I thought Planned Parenthood was so great and that line from Margaret Sanger and she just stopped herself, like this isn't the time for me to say, but, but, but all these other things mm -hmm. and understanding that both things can be true. Mm -hmm. At the same time, without a doubt. You know, I think about this being an election year. Um, uh, I believe that abortion is the number one talking point for Democrats in this election. 
It's one we have to pay attention to. It's one that they want to reach women of every race and genre. Um, in the black community, there is a deep-seated belief that abortion is um, genocide, that abortion has to do with population control. Do you have any thoughts on how, in the days and weeks ahead, we can combat that messaging um, that we know is far from the truth? Well, I would say, I don't, that statistically, black people aren't more likely to be against abortion. But what you are talking about is misinformation. Yes. And I think this whole country suffers from being victims of misinformation. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I'm not an activist, but this is a political play. It is. And I just, I, I think that artists in general are, a friend of mine once said, you know, who's more of a policy person, he was like, yeah, you can say all these things, but it's the art that changes people's hearts. So I was like, oh, that's okay. <laughs> and because it gives you a space to convene, whether it's this, uh, it gives you something to read or experience, to be communal, and that that's what's important in trying to mm-hmm. get people to think about, you know, whatever that, that issue is, to think about it differently. But again, the genocide... Even though you know it's it's not true, we know about forced sterilization in this country. You know we know about all the you know children taken away from mothers, and so there's a whole host of reasons for people to think these things, even if they aren't true. Mm-hmm. You know, given well, they don't want us to have. I mean, and, and it's true they don't want. You know, there's people who don't want us to have children, and that you know goes back. Or then black women's bodies used as breeding grounds. Yeah. And having to create a workforce during slavery. So it's, and that, I think that goes back to why I wanted to have an interracial conversation that anyone can be open to, but just from the characters. Like, there are no white people in the play. And that was by design. Mm-hmm. Well, only, I mean, plays, you can only have like, you know, four or five people. This isn't Broadway where you can have like a, a chorus and, you know, it's not a musical. So you have to think very care. It's my first play too. Like, I can't turn it with 10 people. Like, you gotta, you gotta pay all those actors. So, so I was very deliberate coming out the gate. I was like, okay, five's a good number. Yeah. And so who would those five people be? Uh, in, your, in your book that is a play about abortion, you mentioned in your forward um, or your introduction that you see this really as a love letter. And you've written this play as a love letter to the women who toil day in and day out really trying to keep this landscape fertile for women who need uh, these services. Say a little bit more about these women that you wrote this love letter for. So there are four women in the play, the executive director of the clinic, the board chair, the social media maven, the incumbent black woman who's the city council member and then the the candidate. I wanted to have an, uh, I wanted to be intergenerational I didn't want it to follow along the lines of, you know, old people don't have any values, only young people with ideas that everybody has something to contribute regardless of age. Um, And also highlighting people who are doing work behind the scenes that may not be seen as sexy. And then with Kayla, the 19-year-old, you know, sometimes you talk about black girl magic, and I love the phrase, but sometimes among black people, that phrase is used for a particular kind of black girl. Maybe one who looks like, like my daughter with natural hair, or you're college bound, and you're excelling in all these things, and that should be celebrated. But I also wanted to give agency to a round-the-way girl, mm-hmm. someone who's just as smart but didn't have as many opportunities, and she is... The, she ended up being, I didn't like the fanfare. A lot of people like, oh, I love Kayla. And I wanted to honor that and to show here's someone who, you know, didn't go, who went to not a great public school, had some challenges, wants to go to college, can't go right now. Um, 
And she is a conduit to even her friends Mm -hmm. because she decides to start an abortion storytelling series. So I, I wanted it to be a different, like not, oh, you know, she's an intern from University of Chicago. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I, I wanted to show some class diversity um, within these women. And even Tanya, yeah, she's, you know, so it's like in my head, she went to Lane Tech. And then she went to Brown for undergrad. And then she went to U of C for medical school. And then she got her public health degree from Harvard. But, you know, she grew up in Inglewood and talks about starting this clinic because people like her grandmother didn't have health insurance and they deserved it. So she, you know, her mother works at the Nabisco plant. So she doesn't come from, you know, a a whole lot of, you know, economic means. So the the class diversity part was, was, even though she's in a different economic class now, that was really important to me. And then Cheryl went to CVS with Bernie Mac, what she likes to say. <laughs> you did an interview with Tony Bond, and uh, one of the things that she mentioned in that interview was that back in the day, you know, there were these healthcare conferences that literally hundreds of people from the communities would come to, and that's where they would learn things about abortion services or. or any kind of a service that's considered a healthcare service because a lot of them weren't available. My question to you is, with all of those kinds of intentional programs like those healthcare services available to the community, how are generations today, young teens and young adult women, getting that information? Because we see a rolling back of real information in sex ed classes in schools. Uh, churches are still on the cusp between, you know, um, just simply not having sex versus giving a condom. Where are new generations getting information? Uh, social media, TikTok, their friends. Oh, oh Lord! <laughs> um, and I can't even say, it's, oh, the par- you know, the parents don't have all the information that yeah. they need. So, I don't really know the answer or have the best solution. I, you know, there's piecemeal, like what Tony Bond was doing, and going into churches, but then giving condoms across the street, um, and you know, just teaching women how to give breast exams. Like the yeah. abortion work was just, like I said, one, one piece. She started other organizations that did so much work about you know, healthcare and pleasure and also dealing with survivors. You know, there's so many women who are survivors of sexual abuse Mm -hmm. and not having a place to go to talk about it. So I think it begins with, I mean, I feel like I have the Cadillac of healthcare with my insurance Mm -hmm. and I have a doctor who before I would change into the hospital gown would say, okay, let's talk. Like, I wasn't being rushed. And, uh, yeah, right? Like, that was amazing. But my, my primary care and my um, gynecologist. Mm-hmm. And everybody doesn't have that. So it's, you know, how do you get robust health care where people can talk and get information and ask questions? Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. When I think about um, your process for writing this play, I think about you as a person, as a mother, a wife, a woman, and wonder...